Let's go ahead and get started. Um, welcome everyone. I think there's still some people jumping into the meeting. Um, we are very glad that you're all here to join us for our August Peak Collaborative. I'm Jamie McMullen and on behalf of the Peak Collaborative team, we wanna welcome you and we hope everyone is doing well uh, right now during uncertain times. And reading through the chat, it looks like there's a mixed bag of um, ways that people will be returning to campus um, this fall. And so no matter how you're returning, we hope you're returning um, safe and healthy to, to the new semester. I want to just go over quickly um, before I hand it over to my colleagues, Emily and Chad, um, some of the norms for the meeting. So you should be able to see on your screen our, our meeting norms. Um, if you're just joining us, please do jump into the chat and introduce yourself and your institution and um, what, what mode of delivery of instruction you are returning to in the fall. Some of you I think are already back already, so hopefully that's going well your first few days. Our topic today is forward-thinking solutions to engaging learners and faculty within University Peat Fall 2020 and beyond. Um, we have some really great folks joining us um, to lead some of the discussion. I'm really excited because we are really thinking about solutions and a lot, I think, of what we talked about, particularly if you were able to join us in the first two collaboratives around COVID and what this is going to look like. Um, a lot of it was the issues we were having. And so I'm excited for the discussion today around solutions. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to um, Chad and Emily um, to kick us off with our 74 participants and counting. So great. All right, Jamie, thank you. And everyone, welcome to our session today. Um, I'm Emily Jones, uh, and Chad Killian and I are kind of co-hosting this uh, session today, along with a panel of really three outstanding professionals who um, have some awesome insights, all looking at uh, various solution and forward-minding uh, ways to address this. Um, our first presenter, uh, joins us from uh, the University of Hawaii, uh, Manoa. Uh, Dr. Aaron Centeo uh, is Associate Professor and Program Coordinator for Health and Physical Education um, there in Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, she serves on the Scientific Board for the President's Council for Sport and Fitness and Nutrition. And, she, and one of the things that, uh, another pieces of her job that's real so neat is that she's currently serving as chair of the Professional Preparation Council for Shape America. So although our council is not affiliated with um, any organization besides the institutions and the personal um, and the persons that come here, Erin um, was able to co-host um, a two-day webinar with um, PE and health practitioners in the middle of July. Um, in looking at those re-entry considerations for our P12 colleagues. And so as we were looking at like what our lives as higher ed faculty look like, many of us are struggling with and trying to entertain what do we, what is, an, is a good step to partner with our K-12 colleagues um, who are in health and PE. Um, so Erin uh, is gonna share with us about a 10 to 15 minute overview of some of those major takeaways from that webinar. And then we're gonna open it up for Q&A 
um, discussion about things that maybe you and uh, are experiencing at your institution or how you're approaching um, to work with your colleagues as well. Um, and then we'll move on to our second and our third presenters and I'll come and kind of introduce those folks uh, when it's time. So I'm going to turn it over to Erin. She's got her screen shared. Please contribute um, to the chat uh, and we'll have some time to um, take questions once she's finished. Erin. Hi everybody. Thanks Emily. Um, so as Emily said, I had the opportunity to work with um, other people as part of Shape America um, to host K-12 reconsideration or re-entry consideration webinars. Um, so this was a charge through the prep Professional Preparation Council with SHAPE, but it was also in collaboration with the Physical Education, the Health Education, and the Physical Activity Council. So it was pretty much all hands on deck as far as councils go. Um, these webinars are available, so I just wanted to start. If you haven't seen them, they were actually fairly, um, I mean, I guess I'm biased, but I thought that they were fairly good webinars. Um, they had over a thousand people register for the physical education webinar and over 700, I think, register for the health education webinar. And there's a good 600 on the PE webinar live and about three to 400 on the health webinar live. Um, they did record them. They are for free um, on Shape America's website. So I'll post this in the um, drive for the Peak Collaborative um, and there'll be live links so you don't have to frantically write them down. But um, they're on Shape's website. You do have to log in to get to um, the actual video. There's the PowerPoint. There's also question and answers. Um, but you don't have to be a member. So you just have to have that login. And um, those are all available. So I'm going to talk very briefly about some of the key points that were behind those webinars. Um, but if you want the full thing, I would encourage you to go and look at it um, there. So there are some things that were presented in both of the webinars that um, overlapped. One of the, so some of the major focuses in the reconsideration guidelines that Shape America and the CDC put out was around trauma-informed teaching, emphasizing social emotional learning, um, and so I wanted to start out by just kind of talking about that because I think that it is important in the K-12 environment that we're um, helping our colleagues are, that are in schools like understand how to build relationships with students and how to be a trauma-informed teacher. But from the higher education standpoint, it's also important for us not only to teach our pre-service teachers about this, but to keep these things in mind because our pre-service teachers are not excluded um, from this as well. So when we think about trauma-informed teaching, we're thinking about um, making sure that we're being student-centered, that we're acknowledging that um, not only everyday life can have trauma involved in it, but especially in relation to the pandemic and to COVID-19, your students are coming from different places and K-12 students are coming from very different places. And so you might have students that have not really been um, affected by the pandemic at all. And you might have students that lost loved ones um, or personally lost friends um, due to COVID-19. And so we need to take that into consideration for our own teaching, but also then teach our pre-service teachers like what trauma-informed learning is and why it is important um, in to, to be trauma-informed and to understand and kind of acknowledge trauma uh, in every given situation. Along those same lines, um, talking about social emotional learning with our pre-service teachers is really important. And this is a, a push uh, through Shape America and in um, the K-12 schools and 
thinking about how we uh, teach lessons about social emotional health and um, health and well-being and acknowledging that yes physical activity and fitness and motor skills are really important but that affective domain and um, this idea around uh, emotion is really important especially in a time of pandemic and so again not only acknowledging it for our students from higher ed but how do we teach our students to uh, implement that and to teach those lessons and to have those conversations with their students um, so the other thing that the webinars talked about was the importance of building relationships with students. So these webinars were, um, we had brief overviews at the beginning around reconsiderations, but then we had practicing teachers of the teachers of the years mostly, um, but some other great teachers as well that presented on things that they did during the pandemic in the spring, but also were planning to do in the fall. And one of the things that the teachers really talked about was the importance of building relationships with students. So they talked about how you could do that in an online environment. For many of them, it was keeping those relationships. But one of the gentlemen in the health education um, webinar talked about how he actually had they were on like a quarter system or something. And so when the pandemic hit, he had new students. And so how do you go about building those relationships online? And I think that that's really important for us um, as we work with our pre-service teachers this fall is because many of us are probably gonna be teaching in that online or hybrid environment. And so not only again, do we have to teach them how to build those relationships because they might be in that um, situation in the future, but we also have to then navigate that and think about like, these aren't just, these are people, like these are our students and those relationships are really important and that's gonna go a long way um, as we move forward. And then the last thing that kind of was talked about over both of the webinars was this idea of providing equity and being understanding. And so again, this idea of acknowledging that trauma occurs, our students are in very different places um, depending on uh, the type of background that they come from, right? And the privileges that they're afforded or not afforded. And so we as educators need to be understanding of that with our own students, but then also having those conversations with them about what that means in the online environment. So it might be that we don't require our students to have their videos on. Um, it might be that, you know, not everybody's going to have internet access and how do we teach our pre-service teachers to still provide quality um, experiences for their students when they don't have access to the videos that other students might have. So those were some things that were um, talked about overall in those two webinars. Specifically in the physical education webinar, and I'm going to really just kind of um, gloss over these. They talked about three different scenarios. So online, hybrid, um, and face-to-face -face with physical distancing. So in relation to online, we talked about equity and different learning strategies that could be um, used. Uh, we talked about utilizing a flipped classroom approach. So the things that you could do um, in person versus what you might wanna do um, when you're online. And then it really, there was a lot of conversation in the physical education webinar about face-to-face um, -face and how to provide physical education with physical distancing, what type of activities might be appropriate, um, what are some resources or some ways that you might be able to do that, as well as what the CDC is recommending as far as guidelines. I think some of the key messages that um, teachers talked about in the PE webinar was that it's okay to not do everything and we need to be okay with that. So whether you're a K-12 teacher or we're in higher ed looking at our 
um, syllabi in the online environment, it's, it can't just be the same old, same old. Like we really have to think about what is most important and how we're gonna effectively communicate to our students and then also teaching them how to then do that in the classroom. Um, as far as the K-12 teachers were concerned, they thought that it was really important and SHAPE has also expressed this to touch on all standards um, in moderation and what's conducive to your situation. And so uh, the teachers really talked about this idea of it's not just about physical activity, like how do we um, work in motor skill? How do we uh, work in the other standards and what do we make most important? And then they also talked about how to assess that um, on the back end. Uh, some other things really quick, um, having personal touch as a teacher is really important. And so you can't just um, put YouTube videos of other people on there. That, that personal experience and students seeing your face and hearing your voice, again, is going to help that with that relationship. Um, relationships go beyond our students. So thinking about not just our relationships with our students, but the students' relationships with each other. And then also in a K-12 aspect, um, how teachers can be sending information out to the parents and to the community as well to kind of help supplement learning um, that might go on in the physical education class. Uh, the PE webinar talks specifically about like what type of assessment. So the elementary teacher I know for sure was um, really adamant about different types of assessment and varying assessments and how to touch on different learning objectives um, with assessment and essentially like why not forget about assessment. And so I'm sure that we might have some good conversation about that uh, in this after I'm done talking. Uh, so again, just be flexible, um, collaborate with others. Obviously you all are doing that. I think one of the things that came out was this idea of choice for students and how choice is really important. So maybe not just giving them one assignment, but um, giving them two things that they could choose from that still meet the same objective uh, because that's gonna help with motivation. And within that PE webinar, there's lots of things that, or suggestions of implementation. On the health side of things, um, again, they talked about equity and various learning strategies. So talking about, um, ver although you want to have a schedule and be predictable um, so that your students have this sense of um, belonging and, and the same, they, they know what's coming, you also want to vary your way of instructing. And so you don't always want to give that lecture and, um, you know, do the same thing over and over again, because monotony can be boring. And so trying to interweave just like we would in the classroom, those various learning strategies. Um, as far as health goes, classroom arrangements were talked about a little bit, but it was really focused more on the online and hybrid environments for health. Um, and they talked a lot about content. So there's a lot of questions on the webinar about, um, well, what do I teach? Like, I can't teach this or I can't teach that. And so the, the overall message on those webinars was, you know, health should be a skills-based approach. And so there's all kinds of ways to kind of interweave that content. Um, and we shouldn't be uh, afraid to interweave that content throughout. Um, one of the gentlemen was talking about target due dates. And so, again, as a teacher, understanding is being really important in a time of online and hybrid environment. And so um, allowing our students some flexibility. And I liked his definition of target due dates. So it's not due on this date, but this is our goal, right? And we can be a little bit flexible with that. Um, so that's pretty much what those uh, webinars were about. I think that I just wanted to 
end with starting the conversation about what does this mean for higher education? So in my mind, it's really to help. We have two duties kind of, or I do. It's to help practicing teachers when they ask me like, okay, what can I do? What, what can you give me to help? Um, you know, I have that with grant projects, but I also have it with just mentor teachers and teachers that we work with in a yearly basis, right? So lots of people reaching out. And so also I think though it's gonna help facilitate learning for our own pre-service teachers. So thinking about new skills that students might need um, in the future that we can provide them and maybe varying content in our classes, but then also understanding what our students need right now to participate in various field experiences that we might be um, hosting for them in the um, online environment. So things that I've been thinking about is um, trying to brainstorm about ways to work with my mentor teachers because we are um, everyone except for our student teachers are completely online. So we're not allowed to have any face to face um, experiences and the student teachers are following their mentors. And so right now that is completely online as well. And so how do we still provide them those quality experiences thinking about all of these, you know, considerations that have been put forward with shape. Um, but still get them the meat of the content that we've been taught traditionally in physical education. That's awesome, Erin. Thanks for sharing that. Um, at this point, if you have any questions or suggestions related to what Erin um, mentioned, please feel free to raise your hand or add it to the chat and we can sort of have a 10 or 15 minute conversation about some of this reentry. Um, it sounds like there's sort of the health piece about safety when you reenter, but also how to alter uh, instructional approaches depending on the modality. So I'm sure that was a packed uh, a workshop with a lot of information. But um, to your point about trauma-informed teaching, I, I, you said it twice and I really picked up on this, is physical distancing versus social distancing, calling it that. That framing, I think, can help preserve this idea that we can still be social via a digital environment. So that's just a small thing that I picked up on, but I don't know if that's a thing, if that's what people are recommending, but I think that was an interesting way to frame this online hybrid approach. Yeah, and I think actually in one of the webinars, I know that we didn't change the language. We had social distancing in there, but it, it actually came up in conversation in the chat about how we really should be thinking about it in relation to physical distancing. Um, because we don't want to social distance, right? Like social need um, is really important in what we do. And so that idea, I think framing it that way is important for sure. I, I'll jump in with something real quick. I put it in the chat, but um, Ingrid, um, who I believe is on this call right now, um, had brought up in a secondary methods meetup that we had had recently. Hi, Ingrid. <laughs> that... Um, you know, we also have to be really cognizant of what our K through 12 mentor teachers and cooperating teachers are going through right now. And that, you know, even asking them to have our students pair with them to help develop, you know, virtual content or whatever it may be, might be a really big ask. Um, I know for any of you who have had teaching assistants, for example, it's oftentimes more work to have a teaching assistant than it is if you were to do things yourself. And so um, we have to be really aware of sort of their needs and some of the boundaries associated with that as well. Um, and I'm not sure if that came up at all, Erin, when you were talking with the K through 12 teachers, but 
Um, I think that that's a piece that we have to really be aware of is the easy thing for us to do is to be like, send a couple students to each of our cooperating teachers and but thinking about the extra work that that's going to put on their plate. And I know just today I got an email from our like two star cooperating teachers that we have here in Northern Colorado, who basically said to me, like, we don't mind if students sit in and watch virtually in our, in our classes, um, but that they feel like first year teachers and these are award-winning teachers and they just don't have the capacity right now to um, provide any kind of mentorship. And so I think those are pieces that we have to also be very considerate of as we're planning for our field experiences this fall. Yeah, that's a great point, um, Jamie. So in the K-12 webinar, um, there was a question asked about like that relationship and the teachers didn't really answer. They kind of avoided the question. Um, I know in my personal experiences, like you know, I'm newer to the University of Hawaii. I have only been here two years. And so I'm still like building relationships. And sometimes like if you're somewhere for a longer period of time, you have those relationships that's established and it's easier to have that conversation, right? So the approach that I took is just kind of, um, I sent an email out to teachers that we had used in the past and I said, hey, look, like I need to try to provide some type of experience for my students. And I gave them three different scenarios. I said, um, students aren't allowed to be in your gym, but I was thinking that we might be able to provide them with different types of field experience opportunities. Um, and so one I was thinking was if you would be willing to pair with a student to essentially work with them in that online environment. Um, or maybe I could come and film a class if they were doing the physical distancing because some of our schools were slated to do that um, up until recently. Um, and so then we could bring that back to the classroom. Um, or I, there was also someone that suggested one of my teachers that wrote back and said, I'm not comfortable with either of those options, but I'd be happy to come in and talk to your students um, about like what it is that I'm doing in my classes. And so although not ideal, I think that those different scenarios could be an option for different people. One of the conversations we've recently had at Georgia State is um, how the cooperating teachers are going to evaluate if and how they're going to evaluate students in a virtual uh, field experience. Um, so thinking about providing resources to teachers who might not be as confident evaluating quality teaching um, in a virtual environment. So uh, has was that brought up uh, by any teachers or do any of you have any ideas about how to support cooperating teachers who might be uh, asked or expected to provide formative evaluations um, throughout a virtual experience? So our cooperating teachers are um, being asked to complete the same observation and um, accreditation. We have like specific accreditation forms that our entire College of Education uses. And those have not been changed um, in, in time of COVID. So, um, at the end of the semester, you know, we had student teachers out in the field last semester as well. Uh, cooperating teachers were still essentially asked to fill out those same, but just thinking about it from an online environment. And so the message from our College of Education at this point is that we're still expected to fill out all of the formal assessments. That would be typical if they were in the classroom. Um, ours are a lot more broad. I would say that it's more, you know, learning strategies and classroom management. I think some of that still plays a role 
in the online environment, it's just not going to be traditionally what we would be looking for, right? So some of our cues that we might use to kind of get to those ratings might be a little bit different. And I think that that's where we're going to be adjusting is more of those, the rubrics that tie into it and like what a, a proficient is versus uh, still needs improvement. Um, and some of that language might need to be tweaked a little bit. I see we have a hand up. Rowena Bakura, would you go ahead and lower your hand and give a question? There we go. Hi, everybody. I was just wanted to share, I'm playing with an idea of this idea of really supporting students with their social emotional learning, trauma informed. Um, I'm designing a self care challenge for my students at TCU in all of the classes with the hopes that it's a broader spectrum of really caring for ourselves and others during these challenging times. times. So instead of just the physical or fitness aspects, as we mentioned earlier, to do some um, sleeping habits, some stress and anxiety, some mindfulness activities, et cetera, and that I'm using it as extra credit with uh, enough to encourage them to do it. But to support this idea that we're all in this together, I'm going to use Flipgrid for them to document their participation in this self-care challenge. And so I hope that our PEAT students will have the opportunity and connect the idea that during these times, we have to kind of go beyond just the physical education piece and try to find ways to take care of our students as whole human beings. And so if anybody wants to to play with this design or even experiment it with, I'm open to that because it's going to be an experiment this semester. That's awesome. If you would, you want to put your like name and contact information in the chat so if folks want to follow up with you, that would be wonderful. We probably have one more time, like one more question. We've got uh, Jenny Linker, go ahead. And now that Jamie showed me how to unmute somebody, I think I can help it. <laughs> Here we go. Sorry, Jamie, can you help me? Yep, I'm unmuted now. Thanks. <laughs> Um, you know, we're going to use our homeschool program and go completely online, like I mentioned in the chat, but um, something to be thinking about our local districts, um, both of them, the West Fargo Public Schools and Fargo Public Schools are going hybrid to start, but they also have a separate virtual academy for any families that want to go completely online. Um, unfortunately, at this point, the districts are not using PE specialists to teach the PE portion of the virtual academy if it's included, which it is at the elementary level and right now it's not at the uh, middle school level. So that might be an opportunity if your local schools are doing that to have your students maybe teach in those virtual academies if those are offered. Thanks Jenny. That's like a perfect segue. Um, Aaron, thank you for your time and expertise to share with us what's going on and what's um, trending in what our K-12 colleagues are talking about how they're trying to transition to create a safe environment for students as they um, enter back either into the physical buildings or into virtual spaces with their with their students. Um, one thing that Erin mentioned, which is actually a super segue, is you know, what skills perhaps are our pre-service teachers um, needing that we haven't or perhaps need to continue to foster so that they're effective and ready to enter um, their first teaching positions. And in this case, perhaps um, Leslie Williams from the University of Tampa, they're a little bit ahead of the game here because um, for the last um, several years, 
she and her colleagues have developed and been using um, a virtual or an online PE field experience in their um, physical education teacher education program. So Leslie's going to share with us here in a minute. Leslie, you can go ahead and share your screen and get your um, slides up if you want. Um, Leslie's been, been at the University of Tampa um, for the last nine years working in PEAT um, and the online uh, field experience and virtual PE uh, field experiences that the students get pre-student teaching uh, is what she's going to share with us a bit today and interestingly she's transitioning this fall back to the public school setting uh, where she's going to be doing um, online health and PE in the Hillsboro virtual school uh, system there in, in Tampa. So she'll be taking what she's learned in uh, teacher training and actually applying it as they um, build and develop those um, and deliver best practices in, in online. So um, as you kind of work through uh, hearing what Leslie and her colleagues had developed, um, perhaps uh, she's going to be sharing something that's taken quite a while to establish uh, and some neat partnerships. So maybe be thinking about what might um, you be able to glean to either help you now in an immediate or uh, further down the road. So Leslie, it's yours. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Emily. And yes, you're right. Some of the um, points that Aaron made really maybe we have some of those uh, ideas here from what we've learned with our connections with the Florida Virtual School. So uh, I could just maybe take you back just a little bit. Um, well, first, this is what they currently have. Uh, from data from the 2017-2018 uh, school year, they've got, and probably more now, over uh, 2,200 faculty and staff at the Florida Virtual School here. Uh, they're based in Orlando, but teachers from all over the state, you know, are able to be employed with this, what is like our 60, 67th or 68th school district. So it's a publicly funded program, publicly funded school within uh, the state of Florida. Um, they are currently, and I've been part of this training this week, uh, currently have about 1,700 new franchise teachers in the state. Uh, possibly because, you know, largely because of the uh, changing environment in K through 12 education here in our state and obviously uh, across the country. So they're training uh, folks like here in Hillsborough County, we've got Hillsborough Virtual School. That's, uh, they use the Florida Virtual School content. So they're training teachers in Hillsborough Virtual and other counties where they have a virtual program, but they're using the Florida Virtual School content and support curriculum, all of that um, resources. So that's a lot of teachers. There are a lot of teachers coming up who are um, getting into the online setting, a lot of PE, a lot of health, a lot of hope. We have the health opportunities through physical education here in our state. And so that's a course um, where the teachers have to be certified in health and PE. So. <clears throat> there are about 180 courses, and again, a number of them are um, elementary, middle, high school PE, the personal fitness, um, fitness, lifestyle design, and the HOPE class are some um, of those secondary courses that are really popular. And of course, like many states, uh, students have to, stu K-12 students, high school students have to take at least one credit in an online venue in order to graduate. That's one of our Florida um, requirements for high school graduation. So it's been very popular. And the idea came 
when I was uh, working as a full-time Florida virtual school teacher in PE and health uh, and working on my degree at the University of South Florida and working as a GA there and uh, we connected the two organizations the two schools and we thought to offer this um, pre-service internship experience but you can see there's a document with some data here uh, an incredible number of of credits that have been earned over the years at FLVS so it's been rather significant and of course now growing but so we partnered with um, FLVS about 2009 is when we began and we had um, a couple dozen students at the University of South Florida moving through their their uh, program of study with physical education teacher you know preparation and we thought to offer this as a pre-internship experience and not impact their final practicum in any way where they're full-time all day um, here in Florida like many places we've got K through 12 certification so they split their final internship with half elementary and half um, secondary and we thought in the pre-internship where they're in a secondary setting we could offer part of their not even the whole thing not even the whole 14 weeks but part of their uh, internship would be in the um, online setting and then the rest would be face to face so they would get a little bit of both <clears throat> they spend about eight to ten hours per week um, and these teachers who were cooperating teachers who agreed to host these University of South Florida interns um, they they had one per they had um, so we just flipped it so half of the students went out in the in the field and the other half went online and then midway through the semester the same cooperating teachers hosted the next group of interns so and they just swapped sites so we had a really good experience with that uh, we do have some data I think Sarah Flory might have access to some data uh, from the next year where we actually started to you know, really get some survey data from the students, the teacher candidates who were participating and whether they um, appreciated it, whether they enjoyed it, what they valued about it, what they didn't like about their internship experience. <clears throat> um, initially, the Florida Virtual School, a number of the teachers came to our campus, met with the students in the beginning of the semester. We went over lots of things like paperwork and fingerprinting and all those details that are easily worked out, but they're just some, um, some of the administrative aspect of what what you know the background check and whatnot so that the students have access to getting into the courses with their cooperating teachers <clears throat> so we started it there it went pretty well and we um, continued that for a couple of years they even after i was gone um, they even extended it to a full-time uh, internship so the students had a choice the USF um, pre-service teachers had a choice in their final internship if they wanted to spend part of their final internship in the online setting. And uh, some of them did and they enjoyed it. Some of those students went on to work at Florida Virtual School. So, uh, so that, that's, that's good. Um, let's see, I, so speaking of some of the things that Aaron was talking about, uh, we wanted to see probably didn't look at this too closely up front until after we were into it but wanted to see how we are meeting some standards for our teacher preparation um, are these subject area competencies and skills being met to some degree in the online venue and i could go on i just listed a few here but um 
if you'd like in the Google Docs for the Peak Collaborative, there are, I put a couple of these documents there if you'd like to grab those and see. Um, but with regard to instruction, you know, lesson development, um, we've got, gosh, I've just got a lot of highlighted items where we are able to meet this appropriate level of rigor for the students. They're providing, um, they're collaborating and looking at data and adjusting and modifying as needed. You know, all these things, uh, practicing modeling clear oral and written communication, you can't beat it. One thing the students um, always said is it's really great to practice typing your feedback to students on their work and that um, that actually transfers to face-to-face -face setting when you're careful with what you say. You don't have to just blurt out something to a, to a, a student, um, but you can think about how you provide your feedback and some of that feedback that you're writing, whether it's good or something corrective or whatnot, uh, comes out in the face-to-face -face setting too. So I think that was one of the takeaways. Um, so you can see these, uh, these items as creating, helping to maintain a safe environment, student-centered learning environment. So these are some of the things that are on our Florida Educator Accomplished Practices. And, and those items, there's a number of them that we could say, yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, they can do that in the online setting. Um, um, you know, obviously being dependable and punctual when they're meeting with their cooperating teacher, getting into a live tutorial session, completing some of the tasks that they're doing asynchronously, that they're doing on their own time. Um, so there's a lot, a lot there. I didn't put it all here, but these are some of the, some of the FEEPs and SACs that are met, uh, accomplished practices and subject area, subject area competencies and skills are met uh, pretty, clearly in the online venue. So um, here are some examples of some of the concrete tasks that the students, our pre-service teachers uh, completed as they moved through an, the Florida Virtual School um, internship. So they regularly met with their cooperating teacher. And now of course that we have Zoom, um, it's easier than ever for this to be done obviously. Uh, working in they Florida virtual school provided some of their training that they would provide to their teachers who are onboarding. So they provided training courses, uh, kind of access to the course that the students would be working in, getting an overview of the course, uh, working on policies and procedures, academic integrity, all those uh, training. Some of them were live synchronous trainings and they, um, the school offered our students um, a couple different times to attend. So they really had a lot of flexibility. Um, they wrote weekly summaries and reflections about what they've done. They had uh, documents to share and logging the hours that they worked in the course or in preparation for the course, uh, learning about creating their virtual office. They actually would um, three-way call with their cooperating teacher as the cooperating teacher made what we call welcome calls. So uh, when students were coming in and they have kind of a rolling enrollment, so it didn't matter what time of year, students could sign up anytime. So a lot of times teachers would have a number of students who are new. And so they would, the, our uh, university students would sit in on welcome calls and hear what that's all about. They'd sit in on monthly calls and eventually get to participate in the monthly call, in the discussion-based assignment when 
um, students, high school or middle school students are having to, uh, you know, answer some questions, uh, reflecting on some of the content they've, they've been going over. So the cooperating teacher would maybe get it started and then the, the teacher candidate would be able to ask some questions of the student as well. So engaging the students in those personal individualized uh, calls, talking to parents, you know, checking in with parents and giving monthly updates, things like that. Then eventually getting into the uh, courses and having access to actually be a teacher assistant and grade work. Uh, so getting in there and grading work and um, giving that you know, prescriptive, uh, substantive feedback to the students, creating some live synchronous um, lessons. A couple of times, you know, regularly in an online setting, uh, things are asynchronous, but occasionally, you know, maybe weekly or biweekly, teachers offer a tutorial session or, or a chance for the students to meet, the high school students to meet this collaboration component in their course that they've got to collaborate with their peers. So the teachers facilitate that and they, <clears throat> so our students were able to uh, kind of engage in some of that activity as well. Creating announcement pages online, lots of technology uh, practice that they, they learned. So a lot of different tasks. And again, they do kind of line up with a lot of our um, requirements for, for our students. So uh, that we took to UT, University of Tampa, and um, uh, haven't, we haven't had that um, option lately, but I think now more than ever, we would, uh, what I hear at the Hillsborough Virtual School here locally is that they would like to help host interns as needed. So um, would they have so many teachers and they do a global they don't just work in Florida, so they have a global um, school, so they do connect outside. I think they have students from all over every state, and they've had students that they've served, so. Um, let's see. I think I've, I mean, it is individualized, so our students get a chance to really connect, like Erin was saying, but they can get a chance to connect with young people with the students individually and provide that individualized um, instruction and and feedback and whatnot. So I guess the caution would be that our 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 students, some love it and some don't care for it. But I don't know if now that might change where they're really more open. Everyone largely would be more open to participating in an online experience for their internship. <clears throat> And obviously the tools learn, you know, the takeaways from our students can be applied in a face-to-face -face, uh, physical education and health education setting, a lot of them. Thanks for sharing that, Leslie. That's a really unique um, experience. Um, it sounded like there were a lot of structures in place um, to support the students transitioning in that, which might be a little bit different here. So, so you had a meet and greet where they could meet the teachers. I think the teachers provided a a clear overview of, of what it was like to teach within the Florida virtual school. So there was some expectation of quality. So that was sort of articulated. What did you draw? What was the foundation of that quality? What was quality uh, within the virtual uh, Florida virtual school? I guess uh, an expectation to provide uh, on time 
feedback. Uh, you know, the courses are created for the teachers already, the content's there, and typically they just provide supplements and enhancements. So making sure that um, our students were ready to go, ready. So they had a lot of prep before they could actually get in there and, and start working. So there was a lot of background information about FLVS, background information about um, what is expected for academic in integrity and um, all kinds of prep before we actually gave them um, access to the courses where they could get in there and give, you know, read student submissions and give uh, feedback on student work. But yeah, pretty high expectations to meet with their cooperating teacher over the phone to be engaged in the evening, perhaps for some calls, monthly calls and things like that. There's um, something I didn't share that I did post in the Google Docs is uh, kind of a layout of a checklist of all the tasks that needed to be done um, in the format where points were given, you know, in half of the semester with FLVS and half of the semester in the face-to-face -face setting. So they, they were able to be assessed uh, just based on a rubric that we created for these specific tasks and points given for each task completed. And the um, cooperating teacher did give input about evaluating the student. Are there any questions from, from the group? I'm happy to have another two hour conversation with Leslie, <laughs> but. No, I don't, I don't have that much to share, but I actually told um, Chad and Emily and the others that uh, at that, at the initial time, I was actually still working at FLVS while I was a GA and I was, um, I was actually a cooperating teacher and one of their supervising, you know, supervising teacher and cooperating teacher at the same time. Those are, I got to see, you know, how the kids really felt about it. And some of them just are, uh, you know, I think they were, they really appreciated it. And we did prep them up front. I think before we even tried that, I was starting to give them some exposure to the online venue um, before we tried that proper formal internship experience. And it sounds like the University of Tampa had a, had a motivation with the Florida Virtual School being such a prominent uh, organization within the state of Florida. So that's a real option for those teachers. I think looking to the future, what is that a, a reasonable thing to provide outside of a state that has hundreds of thousands of students in Florida Virtual? Is, is this potentially here to stay? And then what does that mean for P programs to help develop uh, competencies in the online experience uh, into the future. Right. I wonder if you, if you're referring to the fact that maybe other states don't have access to a program like Florida Virtual School. I, some of you maybe can speak to that if you're, if your area um, students take online courses or have that online option at, in, in, in different states, perhaps through another organization like K-12. And, you know, it's probably more than likely that you could establish a connection with them and um, ask if they can, if they have a couple of physical educators who would host some interns and help expose them to that setting. I actually have some contacts at K-12, someone higher up um, who I know locally who maybe could, could make that happen if someone was interested to kind of get the connections going so that they could establish um, maybe that relationship with your university and your PEAT students and a couple of P 
PE and health educators in that online venue. K-12 is kind of massive as well. I think just the challenge moving forward is what is quality online physical education. And so I think I'll let Emily introduce our next yeah. uh, speaker, but the next panelist, Mike Metzler, is going to talk about you know, how we can articulate that into the future if we're going to embed it and expect uh, students to, to teach effectively in that environment. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. So I'm, um, I think that ideas forward, um, Mike Metzler is probably one of uh, an, an exceptional example of someone who uh, within uh, Georgia State and at, while at Georgia State has um, continued to lead his program and, and the faculty there always are looking for ways to um, think differently and implement evidence and, and based strategies to within their PEAT program. Um, in, in during his time at Georgia State, I think he'll introduce himself as like a, um, well, uh, four years ago, having retired from the PEAT program after serving, I think, 24 years on faculty. Um, not only a lot of lessons learned about uh, rethinking and trying new and conceptualizing uh, what higher education and teacher preparation looks like, but also doing it in a way that um, collects data that can inform what it is your programs uh, are doing and if that can translate out into other settings and value that value benefit other institutions as well. Um, so Mike, like I said, retired from the PEAT program several years ago, but then um, uh, took a position within the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Georgia State and is uh, now the Associate Director for um, uh, Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. So we thought Mike would be fabulous to come in and um, provide some insights for us as we perhaps are wrestling a little bit with um, where we go from here in some of our programs. So I'll turn it over to you, Mike. Well, I want to thank Emily and Chad for the invitation to be here and for uh, Emily for uh, uh, getting me through the first half of the first slide. Um, and um, I will beg your indulgence. Uh, I uh, don't speak as clearly as I would like to. So if I say something that you can't understand, uh, please let me know. Um, as Emily said, uh, I work part-time in our Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. And my main assignment is to support faculty who are doing scholarship of teaching and learning. Uh, this summer, along with Gavin Holquit, I am revising instructional models for physical education for a fourth edition. So if any of you use that text, uh, uh, everything willing, we will have it out in the spring. Uh, on the personal side, I have published a book about my life as a cancer patient and survivor, which is how I spent the first three months of my retirement. I have various hobbies, uh, but most of all, I just keep wondering when today won't feel like yesterday, and the day before, and the day before that, and uh, you get the picture. Uh, first, uh, kudos to all of you uh, for this collaborative. This is a very impressive um, uh, gathering. This is the third one I think I've attended. Uh, but you are all essential workers. And in that, you are facing challenges uh, the likes have never been seen in higher ed 
teacher ed and in chief. And um, one of the things we know from some research that we have done um, on this uh, transition in the pandemic is that many faculty and obviously students face challenges in your personal lives that add to the already significant challenges in your daily work. And for that, you are all better people than me. Uh, scholarship of Teaching and Learning, or SOTL, started in 1990 with Priorities for the Professoriate by Ernest Boyer. It is now a classic text in higher education. And in the book, he laid out four areas of scholarship that uh, professors, professors ought to be pursuing. Scholarship of discovery, which is basically research, Scholarship of integration, which is uh, having a bigger picture about how, what all the research says. The scholarship of application, which is in some ways related to service. And then there is the scholarship of teaching. And that's what led to this, where um, Pat Hutchings, uh, Mary Huber, and Anthony Chacon uh, added the L to the scholarship of teaching. And since the book came out, it is now referred to as SOTL. Uh, there, there are a lot of definitions of, of SOTL, more or less the same. But the one that um, I rely on in my work is this one. It involves systematic study of teaching and or learning and the public sharing of review and such work through presentations and publications. Under the SOTL umbrella, study, or research, it broadly defines the disciplinary differences in epistemology and the need for interdisciplinary SOTL. It uses many methods, separately and sometimes in combination. Uh, according to Shulman in 2001, it shares established criteria for scholarship in general because it is made public, it can be reviewed critically, and it can be built upon by others to advance the field. And in this, in your case, uh, that field would be physical education, teacher education. Most of us, when we think about research on teaching, um, typically we think that that tends to start with a review of the literature, finding out what, where there are gaps and where there are needs for knowledge. So it starts in a different place. It starts from an instructor's personal experiences, and or the observations of something that happened during uh, while they were teaching. And basically what it translate to, translates to is, I wonder about that. What would happen if I did something different? And uh, also I wonder how my students are perceiving how I teach. And so in Soto, the, uh, the cycle starts with personal experiences. And in fact, the original paradigm for doing solo was autoethnography. And uh, that has since changed to using many, many different kinds of uh, methods. But you know, this is a typical, I, I don't want to say only, but a typical uh, research cycle in solo. And as you can see, it looks a lot like a research cycle in many of the social sciences, except for that starting place. Um, Sotl, in my opinion, is an emerging discipline. 
Uh, it is well established in some universities, others not so much. But it is an, uh, an emerging discipline, and it is starting to take on the characteristics of the discipline in many ways. It was slowly recognized at first, but in recent years it has seen increased recognition and perceived value. A growing number of universities now allow it as evidence of scholarly productivity for annual reviews, promotion and or tenure. There are dozens of social journals, including many disciplinary journals now that will publish social. So when you access the slide, you click on that link, there is a really well put together uh, directory from Kennesaw State, and you can see all of the journals uh, uh, that either publish only SOTL or they publish uh, SOTL under their umbrella. There are many state, national, and international SOTL associations. Uh, there are a large number of SOTL networks and learning communities. Perhaps you have some at your at your own place. I know there are several SOTL learning communities at Georgia State. Um, and, and Chad brought up this point the other day when we were discussing SOTL to prepare for the meeting today. Uh, and he made an accurate comment that um, there are some people that question the rigor in the review process or in the quality of research and in the review process for SOTL. And, and I think for many years that was true. But at the same time, uh, I think in recent years, uh, there has been increasing rigor in the quality of the research and the way it's reviewed for publication. And uh, almost all campuses now have something named something like a center for teaching and learning. And those centers uh, are usually great resources for learning about SOTL locally. SOTL is often based on instructional interventions. Uh, uh, doing something different in a way that needs to be studied. Uh, exploring the efficacy of a brand new teaching model. Exploring variations of an existing model. Uh, exploring the effect of context on teaching and learning. Something that all of you are experiencing right now. Uh, some parts of SOLO uh, compares what I did before with something that I'm trying for the first time. And um, a, a common model, a uh, research model for uh, doing SOTL is teaching two sections of the same course with different methods or different models and seeing if there is a differentiated amount of student learning between the two. Now, uh, SOTL can be done from the instructors and or the student perspective. You can study only teaching, only learning, or you can study teaching and learning simultaneously. Uh, I'm not going really to go through this list for the sake of time, but uh, one of the features, one of the really neat things that I have learned uh, in my work in Seoul is all of the really innovative and creative uh, new instructional models that are being used in higher education. Uh, and, and I'm sure all of you have heard of the flipped classroom, but these other 
uh, teacher models uh, are, are now became, becoming more popular in higher education. And we have studied several of these models at Georgia State uh, in projects that I have been associated with. Uh, as I mentioned before, the solo not only looks at instruction, it also looks at the context in which teaching and learning occurs. All of you have had your conceptual worlds flipped upside down in the last several months. And, uh, and, and in doing so, it opens up the opportunity to study what happens when you are trying to teach the same content, the same skills, the same dispositions, uh, in a different in a, in a different context. What's the difference between face-to-face -face and any of the versions of online? So um, again, all of you are now in the middle of a, a very natural <laughs> or unnatural um, experience that suits the mission of Sotal very well. So remember I said that Sotal was an intervention uh, based research paradigm, well, all of you have had one, uh, the mother of instructional intervention starters in your life for the last several months, and you are in this brave new world. Uh, every one of you, I'm assuming, has had to transition from face-to-face -face instruction or traditional field placements to some other modality. As a result, you are all trying new things in your teaching, and students are exploring all different new ways of learning. So my advice is, or my, my hope is, that just don't make the transition, just don't survive the transition, transition, do it as an opportunity to explore new methods and models for teaching pre-service teachers, and better yet, study it through a social lens. Share it with your colleagues, and share it with other people in other disciplines who are pursuing social uh, research. And if you can't do that, at least look to the social literature for a supporting base of evidence for how you might teach and how your students might learn in this brave new world of COVID-19 and beyond. Uh, for all of the stress, for all of the pressure uh, for all of the insecurity that uh, the transition during the COVID-19 pandemic has caused all of you folks. At the same time, it does open up opportunities to learn from this in a way that you and others can benefit in the future. And one of those ways is SOTO. Uh, I spent a little time wondering how SOTO might be promoted in Pete. And I will be interested to see if you have other ideas, but, but perhaps you might start, those of you that have doctoral programs might introduce some practice SOTL in them. Maybe there should be a SOTL section in journals. JTPE has their research notes. Perhaps SOTL could be uh, published there. Uh, there should be a SOTL track at the H conference, if and when that ever occurs again. You may attend, like I do, solo conferences and report back. And you may join a, 
a start a solo learning community or a community of practice around solo in Pete. Uh, I'm aware of several solo-based learning communities that have been established at Georgia State, and, and they are really interesting and really creative and really interactive uh, to see in action. Uh, you might have your undergraduate or your master's student conduct solo projects for student research. So there, there are a variety of ways to promote solo in into. Uh, when you see the slides, all of these links will take you to uh, some really good resources for learning more about SOTL. And um, as you notice, these are all from Illinois State. They have an excellent uh, SOTL center there. And, um, and I sent Emily the slides that I used for my SOTL workshop at Georgia State. Check them if you want to learn more, and always feel free to contact me with any questions about uh, either doing solo or learning more about solo. And I will leave you with this bit of uh, news. Uh, when the uh, all of the University System of Georgia institutions were required in the spring of 2020 to make what we're calling an emergency transition from face-to-face -to, -face to all remote learning. Uh, I put together uh, or invited and got responses from six University of System, University System of Georgia institutions to study the impact of that emergency transition across those campuses. We validated two surveys, one for instructors, one for students. We had 910 instructors and over 3,500 students complete the surveys. And at this time, I'm only at liberty to release the GSU data. You can see the number of instructors and students which we have, that we had. But when you see the slides and you want to see the, when you get these slides and want to see the full reports, um, they can be viewed at this link here. There are some very, very interesting things that came out of both surveys. That's it, and I will be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Let that wisdom sink in for a minute here. Thank you, Mike, for sharing um, your perspectives. I'm happy to. I have, I have learned a lot. Uh, and, and kind of ironically, uh, and, and I always tell the story, for years I wondered if, if I ever got fired from my job, as a peer professor, what would I do? Well, I have no skill to speak of, uh, but I found out what I would do. I would do solo research because I have the skill for that. And I'll be happy to answer any questions. But again, would refer you to uh, not only this set of slides, but the slides on the workshop if you want to learn more. Mike, there was one question that was in the chat um, uh, from Rowena about what conferences you might recommend for someone doing SOTL research to present their findings. Um, there is uh, a conference annually at Kennesaw State University. They attract uh, people from all over the country. Uh, there is one that takes place in Savannah 
again, it, it sounds like a regional conference, but they have attendees from all over the country. There is the International Society for the Study of Teaching and Learning, ISOTL. Uh, they have a conference, it was actually in Atlanta this past fall. Um, those are the ones that I'm most aware of and have been to. But if you go onto those, follow the link for the Illinois State website and they have a list of conferences there. Excellent. Well, thank you. Chad or Emily, do you want to um, share some closing or summary thoughts before we um, talk about the next peak collaborative? And I think for those who are interested in staying on, if you have time, um, Kason O'Neill has volunteered to do a quick demo of Atlas and what it looks like. Um, and so if you want to stay on after we close, um, that's going to be available to everyone. So Chad or Emily, um, some, some concluding thoughts? Yeah, so generally speaking, this is our fifth PEAT collaborative call and we've had really good response over the course of each call. And if you think about from, was it March or April with our first one till now, uh, a lot's gone on. And I think each meeting, uh, at least for me, it's left me feeling appreciative of our community that we've sort of developed um, more explicitly. Um, and it's been very enriching, especially as a young faculty. So um, kudos to everyone here. We're coming together as a profession. We have more of these planned every month. Um, and sort of as things evolve, as the, the landscape shifts, we'll continue to, to come together with um, these types of gatherings so that we can talk, so we can learn from each other, that we hear other perspectives and each go uh, forward a, a little bit better um, after gathering. Uh, Aaron, thanks for sharing uh, the workshop results. It, it, it's so varied across all contexts and, and you remind us that it's important to touch base with our K-12 uh, colleagues and counterparts just to kind of get an idea of what's going on there, not only so we can support our students going into those contexts, but that we can support teachers in those contexts now. Um, so again, just to remind everybody, those are posted up on the Shape America website. And did you say that there's going to be a faculty-oriented workshop in the works or something like that? You want to put a pitch in for that? Yeah, I was just actually typing it in the chat box. <laughs> so um, Shape America just approved um, for the PPC, the Professional Preparation Council, to lead a higher ed um, webinar that will have people from across the US presenting on things that they are actually doing in their um, peat and heat uh, classes uh, this fall semester. And so it'll focus not just on the reentry considerations, but more about like practical things that people are doing. And they're thinking that it's gonna be mid-September. Um, so be on the lookout for that, um, Shapel. I'm sure blast it through email and um, on social media sites. Sounds good. So another opportunity for, for the community to come together. Thanks, Aaron. Um, Leslie, thanks for sharing your unique and innovative field experience. Um, it, there's a lot to be taken from that. And, you know, moving forward, maybe that's some, some things that more of us can consider as digital continues to uh, become more uh, more of a reality in the schools as, as the future continues to come. So um, we can learn from your experience and, and, and take that. And, and then Mike, I think we're all 
need to be scholars of teaching and learning in this new context. So your wisdom reminds us that that's sort of what we are at our core, whether we publish or not is, is, is a question, but um, I think we all need to take an action research so to perspective, sort of build that evidence base, even if it's just for our own students. So thanks for sharing your wisdom. Great. And now I have um, back into that setting, I can be the contact in that venue and collect data um, again in that and maybe do some subtle research in my new K-12 classes. So you have right. so we'll thank Leslie for responding to hundreds of emails in the next five days. <laughs> oh, please. I would love to. Anything I can do to help. Thank you. And, and if I can help you, Leslie, just let me know. I appreciate that. I definitely want to continue. I want to do that. And that I definitely want to try and collect data and, and share how I All can right. share. Great. This is why the PEAT Collaborative matters. Thank you all for your participation, your contributions, your conversations, and willingness to support each other. Um, we'll send out another email about the one coming up in September. Keep an eye on social media for topics and that sort of thing. And um, all the best with the upcoming semester. If you haven't started yet, we're all in this together and hopefully we remember to rely on each other and, and, and our social networks uh, for support as we go through this challenging time. Super. See y'all later. Thanks and so don't forget, if you want to learn about Atlas, Kason's going to stick around for a little bit to give a tutorial. So take care, everyone. Great. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. For those of you...